Welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. Mark Schindler is in the building. What's going on, Mark? Sam, uh, I am absolutely slammed with work right now. Um, so I'm glad that we could we could be here and could carve out some time for this because I, uh, I needed a little respite. <laughs> well, yeah, you, uh, you have quite a bit of WNBA stuff happening across the league. It is the middle of free agency season there, something we'll be talking about a bit at the end of the show because I want to talk about the Brianna Stewart to New York Liberty pairing. But before then, we're going to jump into some NBA stuff. We are going to talk about a couple of interesting things that seem to be happening on the trade market that I think are maybe bottlenecking things a little bit, and particularly one effect there that I think is interesting that teams are considering and allowing to impact their thought process moving forward here. Additionally, we're going to talk a bit about the Minnesota Timberwolves, who are one of the hottest teams in the league, one of the most exciting, fun teams in the league to talk about. Then we're going to dive into our favorite fake trades that could possibly happen. We're going to each give one that uh, we're excited to talk about. Then we're going to dive in and talk a little bit about Walker Kessler because, goodness, Walker Kessler has just been unbelievable. That'll basically be our prospect of the week for this week because, holy hell, has he been awesome for the Utah Jazz. And then finally, we might take a couple of questions here and there. Mark, it's good to see you. Let's talk a little bit about the trade market. There's this, there are a few interesting things happening right now that I think are kind of holding up the trade market at this point. And it's really interesting to try and figure out. Like, I, I think that the Toronto Raptors are holding up the trade market right now. They have the most impact players that could potentially be on the move. On top of that, they also have a weird decision to make in terms of do they want to actually sell their pieces? Do they want to try and compete soon as soon as next season again? Do they want to maybe take a step back and rebuild the roster a little bit about around Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam? There are just a number of things that they have to consider. And I think that from what I understand, I don't even think their decision is made yet in terms of the direction that they're going to go. There is also the fact that this 2023 NBA draft is very good, and I think teams are a little bit reluctant to give up picks, especially potential lottery picks. There is the fact that the play-in has teams all across the league competitive and trying to potentially get, for instance, even if you're not a competing for a title team, real money by hosting a playoff game, potentially, hosting a play-in game, potentially. Those games make franchises an awful lot of money. Uh and also they get their players experience that will really help them develop moving forward into the future. There's also this group of teams in the Western conference that is bunched from basically four, three or four all the way down to 13, which is just absolutely insane. Then finally, uh, we also have this idea that teams I feel like, and this is what I particularly want to talk about. I think teams are valuing bird rights more on the market now, as opposed to a guy just becoming an unrestricted free agent. You see it right now with the Washington Wizards with Kyle Kuzma. It feels like they are really valuing the ability to pay him more than anyone else uh, in the NBA. I feel like Toronto might be considering this avenue with guys like uh, Fred Van Vliet and Gary Trent Jr. in terms of maybe being able to resign them in the offseason. I also feel like 
a team that you cover very closely, the Indiana Pacers, were really valuing those with Miles Turner, and it ended with an extension because they had a very unique circumstance where they had cap space in a year where they had a significant free agent, and they were able to renegotiate and extend his contract in a very team-friendly way. So before we dive into all of the bird rights and the traps and the things that are holding up the deadline. Let's talk about the Miles Turner thing very, very quickly. Where are you at on this Miles Turner extension? You think this was very, very smart, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it was fine. Like, I, I mean, for both parties, I get it. Um, well-deserved by Miles, obviously, like for people who aren't aware, it's an immediate, I mean, he's getting paid the max that he can this year with it descending the next two seasons. Um, if I remember, if I, I believe I have that correct. Um, and it's weird because he can technically be traded right now. Um, I doubt that's what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, but, and for what it's worth on that, they basically poured water on that, like, in the press conference. They were just yeah. like, this is probably not going to happen. Like, we're look, obviously, like, he can be, but the plan is, I think they basically said, like, the plan is to have him there for a while. Yeah. Um, what I do find interesting is, like, I mean, they had the, obviously, you know, opportunity to um, – to really give him a long-term deal. And this, I think to me, like we're going to start hearing about this again by the end of the season. <laughs> next, like, it's, it's by the end of next season, I think. Um, I thought, I think it'll happen sooner than we're expecting. Uh, <laughs> I could be wrong on that, but that's just my, my expectation here. Um, like again, and that's not saying this, this was the wrong move. It just felt a little bit more like it, to me, it wasn't necessarily like being like, oh, well, we're going to have Miles here for a long time. It's like, okay, well, we're, we're, we're re-upping because he's earned it and, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, so so but, I, I will say on the structure, though, in terms of length, I would bet you that that was just as much Miles as it was Indiana. It gives oh, Indiana sure. more flexibility into the future for sure, structurally. But also it allows Miles to re-enter the free agency market at 29 years old after their is anticipated to be a significant cap spike in the NBA. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't disagree with that. It's just like, again, I think there's, yeah, there's a million things to talk about with that. But I think, um, again, like, I, I don't think that was a wrong move at all for either side. Um, I'm just interested to see, again, what else they do around this and how they continue moving forward. Obviously, the Pacers have played extremely rough basketball since Tyrese Halliburton went down, which I think was expected for me. Yeah. Um, maybe not as expected around uh, the league, at least not to this level. Um, but yeah, I think what's interesting is like, to me, this feels like way, not something that we would have seen five or six years ago. I feel like so often you had a guy who was on an expiring and obviously like, I think part of the impetus for keeping him there was they wanted to keep him there. But I think that the in terms of what the value would be for somebody who's unexpiring, there's a lot more in the past is kind of what I'm getting at. I think that's what we wanted to lead in with a little bit. Yeah, it is. And it felt like, you know, even five years ago, as soon as you had a guy on an expiring, maybe even three years ago, the idea was if you're not competing right now, you should sell that guy for parts. You should, and that's a rude way to say that because we're talking about human beings, but you should try to get the asset value for him that you can, that helps your organization long-term because the odds are this person has a good opportunity to leave in unrestricted free agency. So I feel like that's just not the thought process anymore. Like I feel like teams 
are acquiring guys in order to get their bird rights. I think the teams are essentially trying to, you know, go out and keep guys in order to keep their bird rights. Honestly, I think a part of this is that players almost are more willing to stay now because they understand that having like a team, having their bird rights and being the incumbent team typically results in them getting paid more actually. So it's just a number of different things that I think are impacting the deadline and have really slowed down player movement over the course of the last year. I think the parity across the league is the biggest factor. I think teams not really knowing what they want to do is probably the number one reason why we haven't seen a lot of moves yet, but the fact that there is this, it's something that Danny LaRue calls uh, in a negative sense when it happens to the bird rights trap. I think that Washington is significantly falling into the bird rights trap right now with Kyle Kuzma. Like by saying that, and look, they haven't said this, but it's been well reported at this point that they aren't really taking offers on Kuzma and are trying to re-sign him this offseason. Well, by doing that, you're basically giving up all of your leverage at that point in a potential negotiation with Kyle Kuzma, a guy that is not quite a max guy. I don't think Kyle Kuzma is going to get the max to you. I've leaned towards no, but the way this is playing out, it almost feels like he's going to. Um, like if I'm if I'm his representation, I am absolutely going to Washington and saying, yeah. I want the max because you said that you're building around us now. I, I just had a 21-7-4 and four season with pretty solid defense. The team sucked, but that wasn't my fault. Like, I, I don't know, man. I feel like the Wizards, I mean, again, obviously the Wizards, not exactly everyone's vision of a competently run organization for the most part. And I don't really know that I blame the front office for that. I think it goes a little bit it's beyond a lot that. Ownership, yeah. yeah, I think that ownership typically wants to try and like stay toward the middle as opposed to trying to bottom out, which they never have done essentially. So not purposely at least. Um, so it's interesting to me that Washington is basically just like, look, we're like I think Kyle's probably on the market like if there will someone was willing to like crazy overpay but I don't know that any I don't know that he is either yeah I think exactly like you hit on earlier is what makes it interesting because I I mean even like last year I think the prime example for me that stands out in my mind is Yusuf Nurkic like even if a team wouldn't have wanted to re-sign him I think that a team a couple of years ago would have been willing to take on his expiring and said okay we're gonna We'll, we'll do this if you, you know, obviously, you know, sweeten it up a little bit for us. Um, and I, I think that's part of the trade off is like, okay, the as much as we've talked about Nurk and how weird his season is in some ways for this Blazers team, I think the trade off for them was, okay, well, we have to give up stuff if we're getting off of him. Teams don't really want to do that. And yep. what are we getting in return that's making us better this next year? I think that's what's weird yeah. because now, like you met, mentioned, I think it's like, there's a lot of uh, like so many teams, especially in the middle of conferences, do not feel like they have a set direction to a degree. Um, and I think that's different and, or not even yeah. that they don't have a set direction, but more like it feels like they could really go two or three different directions. And like you mentioned with the Raptors, I mean, people are waiting on it. Like that's I think that there are some teams that will take themselves out of the playoff picture eventually this year. But with the flattened odds and 
um, and the way that the plan is affecting everything. And I'm not saying this is bad, but I think like teams have just been a lot more reticent to be bad because it, what is the benefit for them? Or at least that's how it seems to come across. And that's, you know, that brings off a lot more stuff when you're talking about the, you know, trading expirings and, and making this work. And it's, it's interesting. Well, and it's interesting that this is the year where it feels like fewer teams are willing to be bad. Yeah. This is the year where Victor Woman is available. Like, this is the year where Orlando, like, is pretty good at the five spot. I mean, they've won, I think, I think they're 15 and 13 now after their loss last night in their last 28 games. Like, they're competing largely because they're talented enough to compete. Like, I don't know that, you know, I'm not saying the front office does or does not want to win, but I think that they just have so much talent now that the guards are back that it's just hard for them on some level to not win, right? So there's like real potential here in terms of teams being able to go from like, like if Toronto really wanted to go from, you know, I think they're in like the six, seven, eight spot in the lottery odds ranking all the way up to fifth, it would be very, very easy for them. Like they could sell their parts. They could keep Siakam and Barnes and, you know, run out Malachi Flynn and precious Achua. And that seems still probably not good enough to compete in the NBA, like a soft tank for a year, you go get another great draft pick like you did the year that you got Scotty Barnes, and then you build around those guys, right? It's really, really interesting to me that of all years, the year where there is a generational potential talent, and actually not just one, but two, because I think Scoot Henderson also fits this billing. The year that there are two generational talents seems to be the year where fewer teams in that middle range have decided to start just like going all out and losing games. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat. It, it has felt weird because especially too, like it, the team, like, it's not that I didn't think teams could go in for it. Um, like, obviously, I mean, San Antonio, Houston, uh, Detroit, I mean, actually, even I, I don't think Detroit intended to be this bad. The part of that's Cade's injury. Um, yeah. Same thing with Charlotte. I think part of that was just, you know, the, the plethora of injuries that they dealt with early on in the year have really hampered where they're at now. But, um, yeah, it, I mean, it feels like all of these teams already had something to a degree and are trying to build off that instead of being willing to – it's not even necessarily taking a step back, but kind of building from ground up again, um, Yeah, which, again, it makes it – Makes it kind of wonky, and I don't entirely know what to make of it. Because, like you mentioned, I think this was the year. Like I expected more teams to come in and just be like, "Yeah, dude, we're we're hitting reset." Um, but it's not happening. <laughs> yeah, it's just not happening. It is absolutely not happening. Uh, and we'll have to see what it looks like here moving forward for them, because for all these teams, because I I don't really know how these teams will go about trying to shift. Toward like I, I think we do see like I wonder if the Pacers like maybe sneaky kind of soft shut down Tyrese at some point. Like we know that this team can tank without Tyrese Halliburton now. Yeah. And they have Miles under contract. They can go get another great player. Do, do you do you look to shut it down a little bit? I mean, they they could really, again, much like all these teams, improve their odds. They're sitting 24 and 28 right now. They are four games behind Orlando. In that five spot, uh, Toronto is two and a half games behind Orlando in that five spot. Uh, 
you know, Oklahoma City is four and a half games behind Orlando in that five spot. I think it's going to be hard for anyone to catch like Charlotte, San Antonio, Houston, Detroit, but with how uh, flat lottery odds are now, there's a real benefit to moving from eight to five. There's a real benefit from moving to even like seven to five. So wouldn't surprise me if there was a bit of a race toward the bottom uh, in the final 20 games of the year, maybe is the way to put it. We shall see. Okay, Mark, let's talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves. I, I want to talk so let's just be real about this. I don't really understand the Minnesota Timberwolves. I know that they're good right now, largely on the back of their defense. Like I, I've watched them play quite a bit. Jaden McDaniels looks phenomenal on defense. Rudy Gobert, I think, is starting to figure some things out defensively as well. There are a number of things that are happening on top of the superstar turn that Anthony Edwards has made over the course of the second half, uh, or I guess like the middle third of this season, uh, if we look at it from a full season perspective. Yeah, at the expense of sounding like a hater, I think it's more star than superstar turn for for Ant. Um, like I think I would consider him like a legitimate all star now. I'm probably not quite superstar yet for me. Um, everything for Minnesota has been exactly like you mentioned. It just feels like when the season started like none of the gears were going in the same direction. It feels yeah. like they're at least starting to have a couple click now. Like the biggest one, well, not the biggest one. One of the ones that I think has been really pivotal has just been D'Angelo Russell. He's been really good, man. Um, like the defense, it is what it is. You know what it's going to be. Um, but I think his decision-making has been a little bit more reined in. And the shot's been, I mean, he's been money from outside. I tweeted this out this morning. Nobody has hit. I think he's ninth in total three points made three pointers made since the start of December Um, after his shot, just kind of being gone since Brooklyn, frankly, like he's been back to being an absolutely money three point shooter from everywhere and anywhere. He's cut out a lot of his mid rangers compared to what it is usually. um, And just really upped his three point volume. That's been huge for them and just kind of trying to improve their offense a little bit. Um, But I think to, legitimately the biggest thing has been Kyle Anderson like uh Kyle Anderson has completely revamped how they play offensive basketball and I mean his defense is really good as well as per usual but um he has made things easier on Ant by being a capable decision maker and distributor um he's made things look better with Rudy like he is intentional about getting Rudy the ball in the right spots he's really the only guy who's consistently finding and hitting lob threats um, he just brings pace and control to the offense, which is something that they did not have before they started playing in the position that they have. And I, it's in a weird point too, because I think with how much they've had to lean into it to play well recently, I don't think they can go away from it. And I, I'm not saying that, saying that they will, but it's like, okay, well, how do they make this work when Cat comes back and when they have the whole lineup together? Are you moving Jane McDaniels to the bench? Is Delo going to the bench? What's happening? Like, I, I think I have a lot of questions about what that's going to look like. That's not to just, like, straight up go and, like, be be negative. But I genuinely, like, I think it's been a weird thing because, like, I don't think a, a coach other than Chris Chris Finch has tried as many things as he has with his roster. Yeah, team. yes. Like, that's a great like, point. This team has literally tried everything, which is what's so difficult about them because yeah. they – I mean, they've needed to because they couldn't find anything. And I, I wonder sometimes if it's been – to their betterment, like they, I, I don't think it was the wrong decision to keep trying things, but um, it's at the point too. It's like, okay, well, how do you? I don't see how this meshes with cat, which is what makes it a little bit weird. Um, yeah. 
Yep. But it's it's in an interesting spot, interesting spot because I think like the defense has gotten back to a like not that it was ever like terrible. The numbers were always still fine, even with them being like you know they have very notable rough spots. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but. Uh, they still have a lot of issues guarding five out. And I think that, to me, that's been like, yes, Rudy's a part of that. But I think a lot of that too has been on, on their guard play. Um, but then offensively, I do think that they're at a point where they have enough answers offensively and answers on both sides of the ball, frankly, like they went from Austin rivers, like barely playing to the start of the year to He was pivotal in not shutting down Steph Curry, but making things difficult on Steph Curry. And that went over the warriors last night which was just one of the best games of the season Nas Reed yeah. like again a weird spot because it's like okay well we're getting all these reports of them looking to potentially move Nas because they are not going to have the money to resign him and they're already pretty stocked in the front court they so it wouldn't necessarily make as much sense to keep him but he's been really good for them like yeah <laughs> <laughs> like I mean they don't win the game last night without him he was nope. he was pivotal like his his defense has gotten better this year it's still not great but I think he moves better. I think he's pretty okay like, now. Yeah, like, like I, I, th- I would legitimately call him a yeah. solid defender. Um, and it's just in a weird spot because it's like exactly like you have these guys who you weren't. I mean, I thought Nas Reed would play a part this year. I thought Kyle Anderson would play a part this year, but not like this. And when it's to the level that they've played, with how important they've been too. Like even Torian Prince been really important for this team, and, and just be like when he's healthy. He at least, again, just bring somebody who moves the ball, hits open shots, and will make rotations on defense. And I think that's what's, again, so difficult about this team is like just having the guys who do the simple things is, has made them better. Um, but it's also like those aren't necessarily the guys who they need to have be their most important players to a degree. Yeah. Um, or I should say swing players, like the way that they're impacting it. But it's, um, there's a lot to parse through with this team. It's a very confusing team. Uh, I think I just tweeted, like, I still don't totally understand them. And I, I guess that, so I, I, like I said, like, I understand why they're winning. I think that, like, the defense is the critical thing here, right? They are third in the NBA in defensive efficiency over the last 15 games. Uh, Jaden McDaniels is flying everywhere. Like, he is. Un- Can I add on J-Mac, too, for a sec? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I forgot to mention this, like it's not gonna, it's not showing up necessarily in his box score, but he's made really big strides as a, uh, as as like an outlet scorer too. Like he's really comfortable yeah. putting the ball on the floor now in a way that he wasn't before. Um, the yep. touch in the mid range has gotten back to looking like it was when he was a prospect. Um, and honestly, just the finishing in general inside the arc has been really impressive. I still want to see a a real jump in him as a three point shooter and getting more versatility with that. But like the stuff he's showing inside the arc has been really huge. Um, yeah. And I think I glossed over Ant too much. Like Ant's been really yeah. good. The, 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 I, I didn't... I'm going to get to Ant yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah, go I'm ahead. I'm definitely going to get to Ant. Uh, but I, I do want to talk about the defense because I think that is the critical thing. Like I think mm-hmm. that the thing that they struggled with early was having D'Angelo Russell and Rudy Gobert ball screen actions where D'Angelo, D'Angelo just is very bad dealing with ball screen actions. Yeah, it, It's his flaw kind of as a player and i think it's ultimately why they probably shouldn't move forward with him long term as the point guard of this team and as the guy that like has to defend opposing lead guards or you know anything like that just given or anyone that's initiating offense in any way because he does just like kind of die on the vine and you're gonna have to play drop with rudy which means that those guys that struggle to recover into the play again 
it, it, it's a little bit harder. Like they were successful last season, moving him a little bit more off the ball, allowing him to like kind of captain the defense here and there from the back line a, a little bit more often, having him communicate really well. That's more what he's good at because he's really a smart player who sees things happen like a step ahead of time. But I think that where he struggles typically is that that screen action. And I think that that's going to be a real problem for them moving forward. And I think it's a problem for them generally now that they're working around. Jaden McDaniel has been incredible kind of making up for that. Like Mm -hmm. he is flying all over the place in help defense. He is flying everywhere. He's been a really, really good on ball defender. I think that like by the end of the season, I don't know that I could vote him all defense right now just in terms of how loaded that forward group is. Like you're talking about OG and Anobi, Jaron Jackson, Draymond Green, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Bam Adebayo is the center, but like might get pigeonholed into the forward group, right? Like it's just crazy how deep the defensive, you know, forward, all defense forward group is. Jaden McDaniels is somewhere in that next tier. And by the end of the year, in terms of value, it would not surprise me if he ended up being in that tier. He's been that big for them defensively so far, just in terms of his ability to cover like six different places at once, it feels like, with how long he is and with how well he moves his feet. He's a really, really good defender. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's really, really helping them a lot. I think they have figured some things out with Rudy, which is big. The Anthony Edwards' defense on the ball has gotten back to a level which is really, really good for them and really, really important. He still has some moments where he kind of falters as a team defender, but that's okay. But they, they are winning right now with defense, which is big. Offensively, it just feels like they're kind of just getting enough out of it because, like you said, Chris Finch, it feels like hasn't quite hasn't quite figured out what they're best at yet. He keeps just having to throw shit at the wall, throw shit at the wall. And he's been unbelievable doing it in order to manufacture points. The Kyle Anderson piece of this is big. Uh, Like Ant playing is like a point scorer and then being able to like dish off the initiation duties a bit to D'Angelo and to Kyle Anderson has been really important to keep their ball movement flowing because like the things that Rudy and Jaden McDaniel struggle with oftentimes are moving the ball, right? I think Jaden's gotten a lot better at it, especially over the second half of the season that we've seen so far. I think he's, you know, getting the ball into rotation, moving it a little bit more crisply, making decisions quicker, but it's still not like the thing he's best at. He's best at either shooting a three or attacking a closeout and trying to get to the rim or trying to score basically. So having Kyle Anderson and D'Angelo Russell out there is big. It's just freed up Ant to do what he does best. And Anthony Edwards, over the course of his last 14 games, is averaging 28 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists, 2 steals, 47% from the field, 40% from 3 on 9 three-point attempts per game. Anthony Edwards, and by the way, like you can go all the way back to a 25-game sample where he's averaging 28 points, six rebounds, five assists, 47% from the field, 38% from three, 80% from the line, uh, and like a steal and a half per game. Like he has been, to me, like a genuine superstar-ish level player over the course of this last like 20 to 25-game sample. He's the reason that they're competing. Here is my concern. So if you look at, the on-off numbers according to play-by-play stats in terms of lineup data. The Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert lineup, they only 
beat teams by 0.4 points per 100 possessions for like a big three where all three of those guys are going to be making the max very, very soon in Ant's case. Uh, that's a problem. Like your big three can't only beat teams by under one point per game. You need them to be winning by at least like six or seven. If you're like a real title contender, mm-hmm. Anthony Edwards and Rudy Gobert without towns are still a minus six in large part, because I think it took them a little bit of time to like cohere and mesh together. But Anthony Edwards without either of those guys on the floor, without Rudy Gobert or Carl towns on the floor, they're a plus 5.6 right now. So they have been drastically, drastically better with it just being Ant. And I don't know what to do with that right now. Oh, I do feel like a lot of that is just surrounding guys too, finding their way. Like not to say that it's, I mean, like obviously a lot of that was like Cat, Cat, Cat and Rudy was not looking good to start the year. And I still have a lot of questions about how it's going to play out. But um, I do think a lot of that's just been, the surrounding talent kind of figuring things out more um, as things have gone on. But um, exactly. I mean, like, like, like you're mentioning, Ant has made legitimate big strides this year. Um, he has one finishing move, which is a Euro step and it works almost every time it's either he gets to the rim or he gets fouled. And I still think like there's stuff that I'd like to see him get to the rim more. Um, but the, he's, he's been making concerted efforts to really read the defense I don't think it works all the time. Um, like he, I mean, the turnovers have been a big issue. Part of that is him learning things as a as a young primary. Um, so I'm not trying to be overly harsh with that, but I do think like that's the kind of thing that's going to continue to be like. You know, I, I want to see that clean up. But I mean, he's legitimately just been incredibly impactful um, in what he's done and, and continuing to improve on. Um, but exactly like you're mentioning, like it's all coming without being in, you know, their 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 ideal five hasn't played in two months, three months. Yeah. So I don't, I I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I don't really know what to do with that either. Like obviously Carl's an extremely talented player, but I don't know how he fits into this when they try and put it back together. Maybe I'm just not, I don't, I lack foresight, but um, it, it, it does feel really weird trying to parse through that. Okay. Hear, hear me out. What if you ran him as like, in the same role that they're running Kyle Anderson right now. Do you think that cat can do that? No, he's not a, I think one of my, and I think he is a pretty good passer. I will say that. Well, I have, okay, well, here's, here's my thing. I have long been a cat sport. Like I love cat. I think he gets way too much shit. Um, I get that he's corny. I don't really particularly care. There's a lot worse things to be than corny. Um, But he has long been hyped as this excellent passer and he is not like he can make accurate reads and like put the ball in the right spot, but his decision-making is pretty bad for somebody who is a high volume ball handler. And I think that's where I would struggle because Kyle just sees the court so much better and makes way yeah. better decisions. Cause I think yeah. if you try to put the ball in cat's hands like that, I would just, I, I mean, that's going to be chaos. Um, okay. Here's the problem, Mark. What else do you do? No, exactly. I mean, that's a good point. <laughs> that's kind of what my, else do you do? my question. Like, what else do you do? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it's really, really hard. I think it's really, really hard to find a way to make the Carl Towns Rudy Gobert fit work 
We've seen it on defense. I think it's going to be too easy for teams to exploit that in the playoffs. We've seen it on offense because that's really where they've struggled this year is trying to integrate those two and then have some, have enough spacing for Anthony Edwards to be able to attack and get downhill in the way that he wants to. I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just, this is again, why I'm very, I, I love watching this team. I think that they are super, super fun. And again, like I want to talk about Naz Reed here in a second with, mm. I find that entire situation incredibly fascinating. Um, I, I don't know what they do though, moving forward. And uh, the good news is that they have Chris Finch and I think Chris Finch has done a great job this year. I, I don't think he's just done a good job. I think he has done a great job because they do not have a roster that really works all that well, in my opinion, but he has continued to find little ways to make it work at a really high level. And that's been critical for them throughout the course of the season. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, he's been uh, like, obviously I'm not privy to all the inside stuff because it feels like part of what's frustrating is so much of their problems felt like just easy shit early on, like stuff yeah. that it, it, I mean, it gen- like generally lack of effort was a problem for them when they had everybody together. And that's, I never know what to do with that with respect to coaching. Um, but exactly like, I mean, they're not, I, I did not expect them to get back above 500, at least like this, I should say, especially with Cat out. I wasn't necessarily anticipating this. So, um, yes, massive kudos to him. I, I really enjoy yeah. him. I think he, uh, I don't love like saying over and underrated, but I think like largely what he does, I think has gotten swept under the rug a little bit or just not noticed because, you know, the Wolves have been more of butt of jokes this year. But I think that yeah. exactly like you're mentioning, he's, not that I think he's necessarily in the coach of the year race because they haven't won enough games for that, but um, he's done a really good job with them. I agree. Yeah. Now, okay, let's talk about Naz Reed real quick. <laughs> Again, this is a situation I don't know what to do with. Like, they they realistically, I mean, Naz Reed's probably going to get 10 to 12 million on the market. I think he's going to get more point. than that. To Has be a shot. What, for do sure. you, uh, what was Chris Boucher's deal? Didn't Chris Boucher uh, almost get 84 uh, for over four? No, 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 not 84. No. What am I talking about? No, sorry. I'm like, I'm thinking the wrong thing. Um, yeah, no, Chris, but, Chris Boucher got like basically, you know, I'm trying to do math here, but he got 13 this year, 12 yeah, the next say, year, got more than that 11 the year before. So, yeah, well, it's a descending deal. So it's like basically a three for 37 deal. Yeah. Right. Um, do I think that Nasri beats that? I do. I think he probably gets like, I think he gets between oh, a year. I, I don't know. Not that I've heard anything on it, but that that would just be my expectation on how he's playing. Um, It's it's going to be tough to I think get that for Bigs now, but like then again, Marvin Bagley got thirteen a year last year, and Reed is much better than that. You know, he's certainly an effective scorer in a way that, and like a multiple and versatile scorer because he can put the ball on the ground and can actually create plays in a way that Marvin Bagley just has never been able to do. I would say that like mid-level money is probably where now like Nas Reed's going to fit in. Right. Uh, let, let's say that that's, could that be four, four, 40, 48, 450, something like that. Uh, or maybe it's like three thirty-nine, So somewhere in that ballpark is what I'm guessing he's going to get. That would mean the Timberwolves are paying something like $90 million to the center position. 
with three different with three guys and like i just can't see them doing that but like is he so valuable that you just kind of let it rock like is that kind of what you have to do right i have no idea i think that's the problem like i have legitimately no idea what to do with it um like if they i mean clearly they want to compete this year like and and not just this year i I mean like the the rudy deal was about competing moving forward not just this year this was about maximizing ants window and it's like i mean what do you get back for nas reed that equates what he's doing i mean he is a young player he's what like i don't even think he's 24 yet he's 23 he's 23 yeah and i mean that's yeah I, I and he's getting better on defense. Just, like I don't know he what legit. Yeah, like he's getting better on defense. He legit. Like you watch him handle the ball, it's awesome. Like he will like attack you from the top of the key, like euro step inside hand finish at the rim, and it's just like, wait, what the fuck is this? This guy's 6'10", 260 pounds. Like how the hell does he do this? Yeah, he's uh like he's legitimately made massive strides. Like the. Not that he was a bad finisher last year, the year before, but I mean, he's shooting sixty six percent on twos this year. He like, yeah. like you mentioned, I think the mismatch stuff has been legit for him. Like, if like he can actually punish teams, and we saw that against Golden State at times uh, yesterday. Um, like, he is capable of taking guys off the dribble. Like, there was a a point yesterday where I think Kavon Looney had a fine game, but I think Kavon had a few issues with him getting taken off the dribble. Yeah. Um, and then Draymond was guarding him in the post and he was just too big for him. Like he's aggressive. He goes quick. He doesn't think about it and he just goes up and like, not that again, like Draymond, I would take over time, but like in those minute plays when you needed it, like he got it. He was really good. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I don't, I, I don't have an answer for what to do with it. Cause I would not want to trade him. Well, and like, here's the other thing, like what do you, what do you get back for him? Yeah. Right. Like, I, I don't know what you get back for a big that is on like a one year, $1.9 million deal, essentially, where you then, like, I, I just don't know how to handle this situation, I guess. And that's why I'm so confused. Like, it's not like you can get back, like you can salary match for like a deal that makes sense, like on bigger salary guys, like Jay Crowder, like the thing that I've been like wondering is if the Suns can't find a deal that makes sense for them. Do they go to Portland and they're just like, hey, we'll just do a swap of Jay Crowder and Josh Hart, right? Like it seems like Josh Hart, you know, for whatever reason, is just like not quite confident shooting threes. Portland really wants him to take threes. They also seem to be interested in Jay Crowder in some respect. Jay, uh, Josh Hart would really help Phoenix's depth in some respect as well. They have enough shooting around him to kind of compensate for that. Like, I wonder if they're just like, let's just do a challenge trade. Let's do something. Both these guys are on essentially one-year deals. Josh Hart's is complicated where like he's a player option. And then uh, if he like accepts that player option, it then becomes a non-guaranteed deal. So it's basically a mutual option deal. Um, But I would imagine he just declines player option and tries to hit the market anyway and get a bigger longer term deal. Jay Crowder, I think, is confident at the very least. Maybe could help them defensively in terms of just being physical. Like, Josh Hart's physical. He's just not, like, quite as strong as Jay. Like, there there are ways that you can maneuver that deal to make some sense. I don't think I would do it. I just like Josh Hart better than Jay Crowder. But, like, I, I, I can see a world where maybe they try and make that happen at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> With Nas Reed, it's harder to salary match for a guy that's, like, an impact player now if you're Minnesota and you're trying to find an impact player now, um, 
I don't really know who that is on the market is the problem. I, I can't really find it. And then like, I can't really find who I think is going to be in the market for Nas Reed this summer. So I'm just generally confused on how all of this works again. Yeah. And trying to th- like, I mean, I think Miami should have interest in Nas Reed. I don't know what that yeah. level of interest oh. is, but I think he would make a lot of sense there. Oh, um, where else? I mean, I, I love would, that idea. I would actually hate Toronto for him because I think that's such a bad fit, just in every way, shape, and form. Um, where else? I mean, like I think you can generally look at most teams, and be like, yeah, I could see it, but like, yeah, for him, I think that would make a lot of sense. I like Miami a lot. That's a yeah. really good call, Mark. Yeah, I would love um, Miami for him. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that works. I mean, Dallas that, that just needs talent. Works. If Dallas could get Nas Reed, I would like that for them. Like, I don't but, think they have the ponies to actually make that happen, but it be interesting. Yeah, the, the problem for Dallas is that they need perimeter players, I think, more than interior players. Yeah, no, I would agree for sure. But I think just, and having, they just like, have limited kind of pop would help. Um, yeah, they just kind of have limited assets, though, because I, I think that what they're trying to do is get past the Porzingis deal yeah. in order to then this summer be able to go out and try and make another star trade to put someone next to Luca and. You know, I don't think they want to give up like real assets for Nas Reed at the end of the day. On top of that, Dallas runs and you run into a similar problem with Dallas where all of their guys make like $10 million a year. Dorian Finney-Smith, Reggie Bullock, um, you know, Christian Wood, X, Y, and Z, right? Like all these guys, Tim Hardaway Jr., they all make like a substantial amount of money. Spencer Dinwiddie. So like it's it's kind of hard to find that like one for one swap that works financially unless it's like Torian Prince and Nas Reed, like maybe you have to shoehorn Nas Reed into like a bigger salary mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. But the term, look, they kind of need them. <laughs> if they want to compete, they kind of need Nas Reed right now, unless they think Carl Towns is going to come back and they're just going to immediately be able to play well with Carl Towns. Well, yeah, and they don't really have an answer on the rest of the roster. Like I think Nathan Knight's given them good minutes when he's played, but I, I mean, there's always a reason why a guy's a, third or fourth big on the roster instead of somebody who's playing more minutes. Um, like he's never quite just had everything for me. Luca Garza tries his best, bless his heart, but I'm not there with him being an NBA player yet. Um, yeah. So yeah, there it's, it's a weird spot for them, but yeah. Um, regardless, love Nas Reed. I love him. Yeah. He's just been one of my favorite players to watch this year. I'll never forget the first time I watched him was, he was on one of the weird LSU teams, uh, not the yep. weirdest one, um, which was last year. But like, yeah, he was I'm trying to remember who else was him because it, it might have been him and Antonio Blakeney. Was Antonio Blakeney on that team? It's a good question. He did have a good teammate. I can't remember who it was. Because I think they only head. went to the second round that year. But I remember like really enjoying. No, no, that that team was Tremont Waters, oh, Devontae yeah. Smart, Skylar Mays. Um I think that was like Darius Hayes was super young yeah, on that I team like as well. Skyler Mays a lot. Yeah, and th- they went to did, no. I think that I think they went to the Sweet Sixteen that year. Oh, they did. Worth. Yeah, that that was like a three seed team. Like they they were they were really good that yeah. year. Um, yeah, that, that was a weird. It was a weird team for Very. sure. <laughs> every every <laughs> LSU team just been weird. It feels like, but yeah. Um, what else do you want to hit on with the Timberwolves? I think that just about covers it. I think that covers everything with Timberwolves. Let's take a very quick commercial break and we will be right back. And we're going to talk about, we're each going to give one fake trade that we want to see on the market right now. 
We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot-blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash gametheory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash gametheory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash gametheory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash gametheory. Okay, we're back. I will let you go first. We're gonna we're gonna do this where we do. What is our favorite fake trade that could possibly happen right now um, in the NBA? We're trying to keep it realistic, guys that are on the trade market. You know, guys that at least have like a semblance of potential to move before the deadline. Mark, I'll let you go first. What is your favorite fake trade? Yeah. So it's a smaller one, which I think honestly tracks with how this year is going and what it seems like yeah. it's going to be. And I don't necessarily have a full one wrapped up, but it's more, I want to see this guy on that team. And that's Jared Vanderbilt to the Kings. Um, he's starting to get phased out a little bit Ooh. in Utah. Um, and understandably, like we're going to talk about, I mean, Walker Kessler has legitimately blown me away this year um, in what he's yeah. doing and how he's looked. Um, and obviously Jared has limitations, but he, he really has made good strides this year. Like he's a little bit more comfortable handling the ball. The pop, the, the, the passing has really popped. Like he's, he's taken more shots. I still don't believe in it. Like he's trying to work on it. I appreciate that. But like the actual like DHO, run like a madman, play hella defense, go crazy game, works for him. He's still young. Like, he's, again, he's 23. 
I believe he's a is he a free agent this summer? I'm trying to look right now at his contract. Um, uh, no, I think he has one more year left. After okay, this. well, that makes all the more incentive to trade for him then, in my opinion. But like, it's been reported already that he is gettable. Um, and just based on what the trajectory has been with him in Utah, that makes sense too. But I think adding a guy who can kind of play all over the place can play backup five for them, which is I honestly I think the only thing I would want to see. And part of why I like this for Sacramento, I don't want to see Sacramento do something like the Harrison Barnes trade that they did four years ago. I think that was four years ago when they were the last time that they had, you know, a really promising team. They make the they make the trade for Harrison, and I obviously Harrison has been a really good player for them. That's not shade at Harrison. It's more this team is really promising for what they can keep doing and building on what they have now. They're really young. I like their style. I like what they're doing. Obviously, adding more ability to to just be versatile with with defense and adding more talented players and young players with potential. Like I think to me, Jared's a guy who can come in automatically be a fit in what they run because obviously Utah runs different stuff than what they do. I think Utah runs the best stuff in the NBA, frankly. But I think he would fit a lot of what the Kings like. I I don't know that you could really play him and Domas together, but I think you could at least try it. Mike Brown's shown willingness to try stuff. Um, and I just like the idea of what that could look like for both sides because you're adding something that helps you improve right now without sacrificing, without likely sacrificing much long term, which I think is important for them in how they're going to go about continuing to build as a team. Because this is a team that I would like, this is very much a team that I would not like to see go out and add some big vet at the deadline. Like, I, I don't know what that does for them. Like yes, it makes them better, but I don't I don't view them as a team who needs to be quote unquote all in right now. I think you ride what you're doing and continue going from there and trying to build off of it. And to me, Jared is is a guy who who helps in that regard. Yeah, sneaky thing with the Timber or with um I'm sorry, the Kings is that where they've been so successful this season, I think, is just always having four floor spacers out there. Yeah. Like almost at all times, it feels like. And surrounding Sabonis with just like crazy amounts of shooting. And, you know, Vanderbilt would be coming in, you'd basically be getting him as like the sixth man, seventh man exactly. that can play some small ball center, but more often than not is coming in, change pace at the four, just like trying to crash, trying to do a bunch of different shit. It's interesting. I do kind of like the idea of it. I'm like trying to wrap my head around what Sabonis and Vanderbilt would look like. I actually don't know if that would maybe it would. Yeah, it's less about seeing Sabonis and Vanderbilt, and I think a lot more about like, okay, we're playing Jared Vanderbilt twenty five to twenty eight minutes per game as our spark plug, our big off the bench because, like, I think part of it has been Mike Brown really likes having different looks, but they don't have a solidified backup center. Like Rashawn Holmes is not there anymore in terms of a guy who I really have a ton of trust in. Like he had that one really good game, but then has been out of the rotation again. Trey Lyles has yeah. honestly been. I love Trey Lyles. He's been really fun to watch this year. Trey has been really good. Yeah. Yeah, He's been solid. But even then, like, I think you just get a little bit, at least another look that I would be really excited about with Jared. Well, like the, the thing with Vanderbilt and Sabonis, actually, the more I think about it is they use Sabonis to bring the ball up the court all the time. And Vanderbilt's just going to fucking go. Like he's going to sprint and he's going to try and create easy offense that way. It'd be a really interesting, like semi-transition kind of guy for Sabonis and like they'll run that like you know they'll, they'll run like a dribble handoff action in semi-transition they've they've started like incorporating this is some really fun shit they've started incorporating like these 
almost like double drag handoff plays in transition for guys like Keegan Murray and like Harrison Barnes and Kevin Herter, where they'll all, they'll use like De'Aaron Fox as a decoy where it's just like, Oh, okay. Sabonis is bringing the ball up the left side of the court. Here comes Fox coming around from the right side of the court to the left side in order to get that ball, go downhill, get to his left hand and be able to score with his speed. And then Fox will just come in and like set a screen for someone like Keegan Murray or Kevin Herter. And then they'll run it around to a dribble handoff for Sabonis or uh, for that person from Sabonis. And it's just like, oh, like defenders can't do anything with this, right? But if you run that when you also have like, you know, Jared Vanderbilt in the dunker spot, like cutting through, and then that has to be defended in some way as well. That's actually like kind of an interesting wrinkle. And then Sabonis is out like on the perimeter so often now initiating actions for the or for the Kings that like you just have Vanderbilt like kind of cutting baseline. It actually could be like really interesting. And then defensively, we all know what Jared Vanderbilt can bring. Super energy, very aggressive, flies around out there, great rebounder. Huh. I, I'm I'm actually wrapping my head around this. I think this is actually a really, really good one, Mark. Yeah, I would personally love it and i just can you imagine mike brown just on the sidelines watching jerry vanderbilt play defense like i think that dude would like that is a match made in heaven for the pair and again exactly like you mentioned i think that there are going to be some drawbacks offensively but that's part of the that's part of the trade-off you know i think that's what makes it realistic to me yeah that's interesting um I'm trying to think of like what they could do to get him. I mean, the money, you can make the money work super easily if you're willing to give up like actual pick capital. And plus their pick uh, is expected to be in the bottom third, let's say of the draft. Like if you gave up 23 and Terrence Davis or something like that for Jared Vanderbilt, where the idea is Utah is getting that first round pick. I would venture Utah probably wants a future first for Vanderbilt, just given that they have, if I remember correctly, I think they have three first round picks this year. They have, like that weird pick swap thing. They have Minnesota's and they have their own. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. That's a, it'll be interesting to see what they target in a Vanderbilt deal. I bet it's more of a future first Vanderbilt is the other guy that like, I mean, if you put him on Phoenix, I think that would be really fun as well. Yeah. Just like have him fly around out there in like bench units, but that's not my favorite fake trade. My favorite fake trade is a little bit bigger than that one. I need to see OG Ananobi on Memphis now. Um, This is where I'm at. I know that OG, I know that part of what Memphis's problem is, is that they have not yet figured out half court offense more than anything. Right. I think more than anything that has to do with like a Desmond Bain being out a reasonable amount of time, B John Morant still trying to figure things out in general. Uh, as a half court creator when teams just drop and like go way under him on screens. But I don't really care. Like, I think that this is the kind of player that Memphis has been waiting to hit the market. Basically. I think that Memphis has been waiting for like a wing that has potential to create shots at the end of the day. And I think OG has a lower potential to create shots than like maybe what some of their targets are and like what they would hope to be able to get in such a deal. But here's the thing, like when you watch OG in this, before we get to the defense and everything, like OG actually gets to his spots and he gets to his spots, like in isolation situations, 
in Toronto's fucking dog shit offense, which doesn't have any movement and looks miserable unless Scotty Barnes is like screening and then like rolling into the short roll area and like, you know, carving up the defense from inside out. But like, they don't run that enough. I feel like, uh, like, I feel like that should be like the hinge point of their offense. And up until recently, it just like was, you know, a fifth option within their offense. They yeah. started to run it a little bit more, which is really good. But the thing with OG is that he has no problem getting where he wants. Like if he is like attacking and he puts his shoulder into you and uses that strength because he's six foot eight, 230 pounds, seven foot three wingspan has a super high release point on the shot. He gets where he needs to get to. He gets to his spot. The problem is that he's just a bad pull-up shooter right now. He shoots like 31 or 32% on pull-up shots. And I think it's just because his footwork is not great loading into that pull-up. His balance and, is really bad too. I think that's the biggest thing. Like, Yeah, like it, it's it's like a it's a thing where I think he was never asked to like create pull-ups when he was like super, super young. And like it's just not there yet in terms of natural talent in that way but it's gotten better and it keeps getting better over the course of his career. And I feel like there's a real chance that like when he's 27 or 28, he's like a legit pull-up shooter in the mid range at the very least, maybe not like from all the way out to three, but he is super physical and he can get to his spots out of isolation situations. He is, it's just like a, it's a weight transfer issue as much as anything it's like a footwork issue there are so many different trajectories on his pull-up shot like sometimes it'll come out super flat sometimes it'll be like a fucking moon ball right like it's but when he gets balanced he has real touch so i think that like it's a someone can work with him in the offseason memphis's developmental staff is obviously unbelievable i think there's like some real potential for him to be like a shot creator on the wing that they kind of need Obviously, like the defense is the big thing. I mean, if, yeah. if you pair him with Jaron Jackson, I mean, what what do teams do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, they're they're number one in defense after I want to say over the first month before Jaron played, they were like eleventh in defense. So, like that kind of shift that they've made. I mean, their defense has legitimately been the best in the NBA. Like that. I mean, that's without goes without saying. The offense has been the problem um, recently. And I think to me, it's less even about him being a shot creator. Like, I think, yeah, like you, you can – the post-ups and stuff, I already – like that's stuff you can bake in for him that I believe in. I think to me it's just more about the shooting. Like part of the issue in their half-court offense has been their shooting regression um, as the year has gone on. Like obviously, you know what Desmond Bain brings. He's awesome. But like what shooter are you uncomfortable dropping off of in their rotation? even like yeah. i mean santi aldama will punish you sometimes john conchar is like an okay shooter tyus to his credit has shot the leather off the ball this year compared to what we're used to from him in terms of volume and um just percentage but like zaire williams shot hasn't been there david roddy shot hasn't fallen like none of the and it's not that there hasn't been anything good from from williams or roddy or laravia but um they did i don't think that their impact has been like necessarily like they do positive things, but I don't think the impact is necessarily felt positively all the time. So I think part of the issue is like, again, like there are teams that are routinely able to put two or three guys in the paint against shot. That's been a big problem the last week and a half. Um, Like even like Dylan Brooks, as good as he's been defensively this year, the offense has been kind of a disaster with him. 
the shot has yeah. been gone. Um, the interior shot creation hasn't really been awesome either. And it just as isn't super palatable. Um, and I think maybe part of it is just his role. And I, I don't think Dylan Brooks is comfortable or, or wants to not be a starter. Like he's a good enough defender <laughs> where I get it. Um, and I'm not advocating for them to trade him, but I'm just saying, like, I think I look at that and I'm like, okay, if you have OG Ananobi in the other corner or in the slot, like teams are going to care about that. And even if yeah. he isn't, you know, getting, getting the, like, even if he's attacking a closeout, I trust OG to attack a closeout and draw a foul or at least get into the paint and make something happen. And, well, um, and, and speaking of that, that, that's actually another thing I want to bring up. I feel like very rarely does OG Ananobi actually get to attack a bent defense. Off oh the yeah, closeout, exactly. Right. Because Toronto's offense just doesn't have that kind of movement. If you have John Morant, like breaking down defenders, getting into the paint and throwing kickouts to OG Ananobi and defenders are like way off of Ananobi because you just have to be when you have to help off and like try and stop Ja from just living in the paint. That's going to create easier opportunities for Ananobi, I think, to attack closeouts, get to the rim, use his strength, use his physicality, get to the foul line more often. Like, Mm -hmm. I actually think that it's going to help Ananobi's offense to be in Memphis more than what we've seen from it so far. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And then, like, I mean, to me, exactly like you mentioned, like, it's not necessarily adding the other shot creator, but with what that defense is between him and Jaron, and then, like, obviously, like, they're going to be playing in lineups with well, Steven Adams, too. Like, and, and frankly, Dylan Brooks. Dylan Brooks is yeah, a great yeah. defender. I do think with salary matching purposes, he probably ends up going back. Um, but well, it, I mean, it'd be, well here's the thing. It, speaking of defense, it'd be one of Dylan Brooks or Danny Green, probably. Right? And Danny Green is back. Like, <laughs> we'll see what Danny Green looks like long term. But, like, Danny Green, I think, is still going to be a great defender because, like, he was always more of a fast brain as opposed to like fast body and athleticism guy. Uh, his processing and like the way he thinks about basketball is still going to be there. Uh, I would imagine he's still going to be like a super, super impactful, like help defender and super smart. Uh, maybe not as good on ball, but if you're getting OG and you know, you probably don't need as much on ball defense from someone like Dylan Brooks. So I don't know, man, like, I think it's a match made in heaven. I also think that the critical thing is that a, the question around Ananobi for a lot of people is you're going to have to pay OG, right? And if you have a bunch of guys already, are you going to want to pay OG and everyone else? Yes. Memphis is one of the richest owners in the NBA. Like Robert Para is very, very wealthy and they have sneaky been willing to pay in places that other teams have not been as willing to pay. Like they've been willing to like buy out Andre Iguodala's deal in order to get a first round pick. Like they just like dropped like, you know, 11, I can't remember. It was like 11 or 15 million or whatever it was. They were just like, we will eat that contract. We'll take the first round pick. Very, not a lot of owners do that where they're just like eating dead money. Right. And they've done that multiple times. Like they've just eaten money to be willing to do that. He is, even though they haven't like had to pay luxury tax yet, I think we've seen enough signs from Robert Para that he's going to be willing to pay to where I don't think they're going to have a problem paying OG Ananobi. On top of it, Jaron Jackson is on like a killer contract that I I would, you know, it really, I think positions them well to do something like this is Mm -hmm. maybe the way to put it. The other thing here is he fits their age timeline really well. 
This is a guy, this is a group of dudes that are 22 to 25 years old in John Morant, Desmond Bain, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., um, Santi Aldama, you know, et, et cetera, right? Everyone like that. These dudes are very competitive and they're all like good dudes and they are all very young. OG Ananobi is 25 years old. He's someone that can grow with this core. They're not just trying to compete like in the next year. They're trying to compete for the next five years and trying to open the window as long as they can with this core. I think yeah. that he fits really, really well with that. Yeah. And I think to me too, like I, I agree that their, their window is, is long, but I think they have to think short term to a degree too, because you just never know what this stuff. Um, like I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, but like, you never know what happens injury wise. You never know how things are going to work out in your favor or yep. against you. Like, I mean, let's just be being honest with what's happened with Denver. Like I thought the last two years, Denver really had an opportunity to be title contenders and it's not that they weren't, but like, again, Michael Porter Jr. And Jamal Murray missing most of that time yep. and really being hurt that hampers things. Obviously things have played out really well this year. So I'm not trying to take away from that, but more often than not, like you, see title windows crash well the the better the better example is phoenix yeah yeah no that's a great point and i think like like, yeah phoenix it's closed (laughs) i don't know if it's closed yet but like it's closing at the end of this year probably yeah and i think to me i view memphis as a team that is talented enough where they have to be active in making this thing happen i get that they like they really believe in their ability to develop and they should it's been very well documented and noted but at the same point I don't think that you can just quote unquote develop your entire roster into a championship. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that this, and this is not a, this generation take, but it's just being realistic and honest. This team has already had the taste of being in the playoffs. Like they've been there. They've started to make things happen. Like they're ready to a degree. Like I think adding the talent obviously is, is the next step, but um, yeah, I think this team very much needs to make a move and yeah, in, in a positive way, I don't mean that. I'm like, ah, this team. Like, regardless, I think they're going to make noise in the playoffs. But I wouldn't be ready to call them a real like title contender right now without yeah. um, adding another another piece. Is Zaire Williams, Danny Green, and two unprotected first round picks enough for OG and Anobi? Can you repeat that? Zaire Williams, Danny Green or Dylan Brooks, whichever one you want to use for the matching purposes, and two unprotected first-round picks, enough? Uh, I mean, I think it would depend how Toronto feels about Zaire. Um, and I yeah. really like Zaire, too. Like, I know it hasn't been a perfect year for him, but I still like I like what he does defensively, especially at his size. Yep. Um, I still believe in the, sh- the, the shot creation potential. Um, that's a really yeah. interesting guy to build around. The issue is I don't know how he fits in what Toronto has right now. I think maybe yeah. the future you can you can view that, but that's on Toronto to figure that out. I think that's you're you're in you're in ballpark and talking about what yeah. you're needing to give up. Um, like maybe they see the issue is like I don't know who else they'd even ask for out of that. Like, I mean, if if yeah, no, there's. Yeah. Well, like the, the two guys I like best outside of Zaire are Jake Laravia and Santi Aldama, based off of what Santi has shown this year. Santi's been fun. I like Santi. Santi's a been lot. really fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I still am a big believer in Jake Laravia. Like mm-hmm. I've I think he is gonna be good. Uh I know that David Roddy is playing. That does not make any sense to me at all. 
Um, if, if I could move Roddy, I probably would right now if I was being completely honest. But yeah. I, I think that I am a little bit lower on David than what some people are. Um, but nonetheless, like Zaire fits a lot of what Toronto looks for typically. You know, bigger dude, good defensively, need to fix the shot, which is something that Toronto seems to think they can do uh, with mixed results at this point. Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like as a centerpiece in an Ananobi deal, unless you're like trying to star hunt in an Ananobi deal where like they're trying to go out and like, you know, can, can you get like Zach Levine or something like that? And then you build around like Levine, Scotty and Siakam or something. I, I'm just like spitballing here. I, I'm trying to like find random stars that you could maybe make a case for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's it, This is a tough one. It's a very tough one. But I think Zaire, two unprotected firsts, and Dylan Brooks is like in the ballpark for sure. Uh, Danny Green. I think that's in the ballpark for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's go to Walker Kessler because you talked about Utah a lot there. If I'd have known you were talking about Utah, I'd have switched topics. So I could have segued beautifully into Walker Kessler here. But I'm just out here to ruin things and make it harder on you. That's that's the way it goes, man. I mean, it's hard out here being a host. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, Walker Kessler has been flat out unbelievable this year. He is just straight up a starting center in the NBA. He's probably a top half starting center in the NBA already. Uh, I am blown away by him. Have I'll start with this. I really liked Walker Kessler as a drop defender coming into last year's draft. I thought he had great instincts. I thought he was obviously an incredible rim protector. I noted in my scattering report, like ambidextrous shot blocker really can contest with both hands. Great in the cat and mouse game. I don't think I've ever seen a rookie that is better in the cat and mouse game of like drop coverage in ball screens for bigs than Walker Kessler is. Can you, can you remember anybody that was this good? I mean, Evan Mobley. At it? Um, no, 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 not even close, I don't think. Because Mobley's think, not as good of a rim protector. Ooh, I would disagree. I think Mobley's a better defender. All Like, like oh, without question. In total, like, in I would total, I agree with you. Like, not a better, like, center rim protector. But in terms of his rim protection skills, I would consider Mobley better. No, no. It's just because out of drop coverage particularly – no, just in general, I think his rim protection goals oh, are better. Like, yeah, I'm talking okay, specifically well, about like drop okay, coverage. As a straight-up drop at the five, yeah. yeah. Okay, my bad. Yeah, I, I misinterpreted yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I have so many positive things to say, man. It's <laughs> – I was uh, – I wasn't as bad as I think some people were with Walker. I think I underrated what he could potentially be a little bit, um, mainly because of the offense. Like, I didn't think about – what is really health Walker for me is how simple their offense is and yeah. it fits what he does like roll really hard, which that's, I mean, cause I just want to talk about the offense first. Cause that has been really important for him being on the court. Like he's in his 10 games that he started back to back to back and so on the, first of all, they're seven and three and they've played a pretty solid schedule. Um, he's averaging 12 points, 11 boards, five of them offensive like yeah. he, so they, Just they have hurt. empowered him. They're like, go crash the glass, be extremely aggressive on the glass, roam in the dunker spot, roll really hard, 
set solid screens. I don't think he's a very good screener yet. I think obviously it's going to come with time. Like he doesn't have a super strong base yet, but like he's a rookie. I don't expect that to be good. Um, I will note one thing with his screening. I think he's really, really good already though at timing, like when to flip screens and when to like just change the angle for ball handlers to be able to get that little bit of separation. You're definitely right in terms of the base though. And like, making contact but he's good at like making himself an impediment and using his footwork to do that yeah and part of what helps too is like how much motion there is in their offense makes it not matter as much like it makes it easier for him to to get into his roles easier for him to like to get the most out of his gravity get the most out of all of their movement shooting and just stuff in general so that's been really huge for him because i my biggest thing with him was and also i gotta say like i don't think that it is perfect by any stretch yet but like he legitimately has been better at short roll in this offense than he was at Auburn. And I think, again, part of it is the offense he's in because Auburn's yeah. offense was yeesh sometimes last year. Um, you know, you, you play, mean the, you mean it's the different Wendell, playing with Mike Conley than playing with, you know, some other guys. But um, you mean Katie Johnson and Wendell Green weren't always hitting okay, that pocket pass the short guys. roll? I love watching those guys play. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a little different playing with, with Mike Conley. I think. I mean, that's part of what's been really fun. Like having a veteran like that who can set the table and just be steady is so huge. Um, but then, so so I've been impressed with that. I've liked that. I think that the touch around the rim is obviously very nice, Like, but it's mostly like him dunking everything because he's massive and is really well-coordinated. Um, so that's been fun. But the defense, I just need to riff on the defense. He – I expected him to struggle a lot with foul trouble this year because of how aggressive he is in yeah. trying to hunt blocks. And I do wonder if that's going to come back to bite him eventually this year. Hasn't yet. Um, like there, I mean, he jumps at everything, but he's been so good with verticality and not yeah. jumping into people, but just jumping straight up. And it's been just a joy to watch. I, in terms of verticality, other than Evan, like I can't think of guys who, have brought but, that level of vertical. And again, like you mentioned, playing as the solo rim protector at the five, like it's different. Here, sure. Yeah. Here's the difference between Walker and Evan is a rim protector, particularly, and why I think Walker is a better rim protector. It's because of his strength through his chest and core. Like you can kind of yeah, like put really your shoulder. Yeah. Like you can put your shoulder into Evan and open up some space. You cannot do that against Walker Kessler. He is so like wide and thick while also being like skinny. Like he has that like Brooke Lopez frame that just does not allow guys to go through his chest. Like when guys try to bump his chest, he doesn't like bend, right? He just stays straight up because he's so strong through that area of his body. He he is I think he's like pretty substantially purely as a rim protector. I think Evan is so much more versatile. He's so yeah. much better as an overall help defender. Obviously he can go out and switch on guys like, and I think he is good in like the cat and mouse game and ball screens. Like Evan is a much more complete defender than Walker. Walker Kessler is a much, I think he's a much better rim protector than Evan Mobley is just because of the strength. And because I think he's just like bigger and longer than Evan, frankly, like, I don't know if the numbers say that, but when you or like, I don't know if like the measurements say that, but when you watch Walker, like with how wide his shoulders are compared to Evan and how like long and like strong he is through his court, I think that he is, I think he's bigger and a stronger impediment at the rim than Evan is. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, 
the um I think the physicality, like you mentioned, has been really important because not that I thought That's he was necessarily point. bad at it, but like I think yeah. last year he could really struggle with with stronger posts. Um mm-hmm. and this year, like I think he still has had some issues guarding like I mean, like Jokic absolutely ate him alive when they played. Um, that's gonna happen to anybody. So I always I just want to say too, whenever I hear an argument brought up in draft discourse, like, well, can he defend Joel Embiid or, or Nicole Yosh? I'm like, well, nobody fucking can. So why are we using that as a benchmark? Um, sorry for dropping the hard F, but like I just like it's it's ridiculous to me sometimes. Like you gotta have some 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 foresight there. Um but like you mentioned, he's been so good at not getting bumped off and just being able to stay solid around the rim. He's owned the restricted area, um, which has been extremely fun to watch. Yeah, no, I mean, here's the other thing, too, that's really fun about the Walker Kessler experience. Utah is starting to get creative with what they do around him. Like, they started a couple nights ago against Dallas. A Walker Kessler, Lowry Markin, and Kelly Olenek lineup. It was super, super fun. And like they played those guys' minutes, and it was it was really, kind of like, wild. That was fun, weird, though. Was but also lineup. really effective. Like it yeah. was effective. Like if so, like I looked up the numbers because they've done this like a few times throughout the year. Uh, the, the numbers on that lineup are actually like very strong. It's like I'm literally pulling them up right now as we talk. Uh, they've played that lineup more than I thought they would have. Like they've played them 126 minutes this year. That lineup has a plus 14 net rating when they do it. And it's all because of like the defense just is completely insane. Like they give up 109 points per 100 possessions. There's just so much size. Like, yeah. I mean, but there's also shooting. Like, yeah. there's shoot. Like, Lowry can score from the mid post. They both can shoot threes. Walker is like an unbelievable roller. They, can, they average 123 points per 100 possessions in those lineups. Like, they're killer. I don't, I don't it's, a, it's a wild, wild lineup. I love watching Utah play. Yeah, part of what has been really fun too is like like you mentioned. I think obviously like we just mentioned Walker. I think Lowry still has been like I think he's been good defensively this year. A lot of it has just been like their guards are so rough defensively. Like I tweeted about this yesterday in turn and not to get derailed, but like anytime I see a this team should trade for Malik Beasley, Beasley I'm like I I can't just because of what's going to happen defensively. Um so yeah, that's just some of the issues that they have. But um like you mentioned, just having those three guys together and being big and in the right places and in the way has been big. And like, um, since Walker has been put in the starting lineup, so January tenth, in that time sprint time span and that 10, 10 game stretch, Jazz are seventeenth in, in defensive efficiency, so right around average. Um, it doesn't seem like a lot, but considering they've been around thirtieth for most of the year, that's that means something. Like he's really been an impact. It's not just getting blocks. Um, it's been very, very impactful. Um, and he's had two seven block games in that in that stretch, um, which has been, yeah. I mean, just kind of wild. Um, it's been very fun to watch. Okay, so here's the fun question. Are I, I kind of wrote about this for tomorrow? I'll give people a preview. Are we a hundred percent sure he's not the rookie of the year? Yes, I'm a hundred percent sure. Like, I'm not trying to be unfair i think i would have him second i think he's been better than benedict matherin this year for being honest um i can't get there over paolo like what paolo is doing as a rookie has meant a lot more to me uh just in terms of a what he's doing right now load wise what he's being asked to do um 
and what it means for the future. But I can get there with Walker at number two. If you look at any of the advanced numbers, Kessler is it, – it's like literally all of them. Okay, but also he's Kessler. on a way better team than Orlando. So the advanced numbers are going to be better. And the role is much different, right? Yeah. Look, yeah. I agree with you. I would have Paulo as the rookie of the year. There are like five guys in the last 50 years that have averaged 20 points, six rebounds, and three and a half assists per yeah. game as rookies. Paulo is one of them. Uh, his role is much larger. And his role is now like he is one of the top two guys along with Franz Wagner on a team that like is now winning games over the course of this last third of the season, right? They're 15 and 13 over this last little 28 game stretch. So that that's Paul, like Paulo is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. His ability to make passing reads, his ability to be a primary scoring threat as a shot creator. It's Paulo. I'm just saying that <laughs> if people, if someone votes for Walker Kessler for rookie of the year, no, at the end I can't, of the year, I, I'll be very I, annoyed if somebody votes for Walker. I will Kessler. not clown that. I will I, not clown that. See, this is my issue though. And this is not me going at you. This is just in general. Sometimes I think we think way too hard about shit and make it much more nuanced than it needs to be. You cannot look at what Paolo is doing and say that Walker Kessler has been better than him. Like that's crazy to me. And that's not me trying to discount him, but it's like at some point, as much as I appreciate use and understand advanced statistics, you have to look at what the, what's actually happening on court. Like, and and that's not saying that Walker doesn't do stuff on court, but like, it's just different. Like, no, I can't. So here, here's the big reason why I think it's Paolo. Uh, the offensive side of the court is just much more important in today's NBA than the defensive side of the court. It, ju- it just is. Good offense beats good defense in today's NBA. And Paulo has been the drastically better offensive player. Kessler, like if we're talking about like Paulo's offense, Paulo's defense, Kessler's offense, Kessler's defense, right? Like as like the four disparate pieces of their game, Kessler's defense has been the best like of those four things, right? Like what Walker Kessler's been... Like Walker Kessler, I think, has a case as being like a top 25 defender in the NBA this season. Uh, He's been incredible. But offense is just way more important in today's NBA. It just is. It's the reality of the situation. There's a reason scoring is up. There's a reason that uh, offensive efficiency is like through the roof, basically. It just is. Right. Uh, I I have to go Paulo as rookie of the year. If they were still losing, if this Orlando team was like, you know, 12 and 42 or whatever that would be, then I think it would be a real conversation. Mm-hmm. But right now, now that they're winning, now that it's a situation where Orlando is actually like pretty good, I do think it's Paulo. Like, I, I think it is like certainly Paulo right now. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to be clear about that. I'm just asking, is there a case? For. No, I'm just, I'm just raising. I'm sure to say no. <laughs> so, any angry jazz fans, please at me at mg underscore Schindler on Twitter. I probably will, yeah. will respond. Um, so yeah, yeah. It, but Walker's been unbelievable. I agree. Yes. He's the second best rookie so far this year. Um, okay, I want to give you some time. I want to give you uh, the floor here because I also like just you know want to talk about how much I enjoy watching Brianna Stewart play basketball. Uh, Brianna Stewart is now a member of the New York Liberty and she's going to get to play with Sabrina Ionescu and 
Who's the French point guard? I always forget. Mourinho Hans. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's crazy to you because I don't know if you've gotten to see it today. It's also and, been and to, insane today. To, yeah. And, and like, to be clear, I'm a very casual WNBA fan. Like, the, the mo- like you know what I mean? Like, I love the league. I love watching every single game that I watch. But I'm, I'm a casual in this circumstance. Like, and that's okay. I'm here to teach you. I'm here Mark to is the learn you a thing. <laughs> Um, yes. So, yeah, let's put it like this. They have Sabrina Ionescu, who I would probably consider their fourth best player now, which is kind of wild. But Sabrina Ionescu, John Quill Jones, who was the MVP in 2021, uh, Brianna Stewart, who is a former MVP, who is at worst the second best player on planet Earth. Um, and it seems possible, Benajelani, who is a former all, all-star, who is a really good player, top 20, 25 player in the league, it seems like she's going back in a trade. Potentially that hasn't been confirmed yet, but they added Courtney Vandersloot today, who is probably the best point guard in the league, her Chelsea Gray. Um, or, I, I mean, she could go Skylar Diggins-Smith too, but she's out right now. But point being, like, they now have an, an all-star starting five. And it is really fun and interesting to look at because all of, like, the great eras of the, the WNBA have had – Super teams have been marked by that, like the Minnesota Lynx in the in the Los Angeles Sparks when they were going back in the mid 2010s. You had obviously Maya Moore, Rebecca Brunson, Sylvia Fowles, Simone Augustus. Like that's four Hall of Famers for the Sparks. You have Candace Parker and Chelsea Gray and Neka Gumake, who is still like I mean I I had her I think fourth in MVP voting last year. She was really good. I had Candace sec- I think third in MVP voting last year. Like again, like point being, still really good players. That was another team that you have. And there's other, I mean, obviously tons of talented role players. Now we have two teams where you can legitimately say both of their starting fives could start the all-star game. Um, A, that just doesn't happen very often. B, it really sets the table for a lot of interesting stuff to happen this year. I think kind of similarly to, um, and this is going off on a big riff, so just bear with me. But like, I'm really interested because what makes this so fun and interesting to look at, A, the competitive talent is going to be very fun. It's a huge storyline fall throughout the year. As much as I think it will rub some deeper, hardcore people the wrong way, like, oh, you have all this talent on two teams, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, for the standpoint of, like, building narratives and stories and seeing how things play out, I think that matters a ton for the league and seeing where this is going to go. The bigger thing is the 2024 and 2025 WNBA drafts are, like, the – next big thing in basketball for for the w um all of the like obviously like Aaliyah boston and Haley jones are, are gonna probably be the top two picks this year and they matter a ton and where the, their college basketball is at right now but the biggest stars in college basketball for the most part are people who are freshmen sophomores right now like obviously juju watkins is going to, to usc next year and she'll be there for four years presumably unless she doesn't transfer um the 2024 and 2025 draft is a bringing in like the first real wave, at least in my experience and looking back and understanding the league of really high level shot creators on the wing. Cause that's just not really a big archetype that exists in, the, in, in women's basketball right now. Um, you're going to have a lot of high level, just on ball dribble creators like Olivia miles who plays for Notre Dame right now is, is she could enter the She's, a sophomore right now, she could enter the W tomorrow and be at worst the fifth best passer in the league. Like she's unreal with the ball in her hands. Um, so I think what makes it interesting is like you have these two two teams that are going to be like the clear cut title contenders 
you have a couple teams that are branching off and saying, okay, we're going in a new direction because we have to. What does that look like for the next two years of them, them building and what they get in the draft and how they try and approach things? Because obviously, you know, draft is a little bit different, but I think you're starting to see things play out differently. But um, it's really fun, man. It's very fun to look at. And mainly it's just like for, for, the, for the Liberty, Brianna Stewart is one of the best defenders I've ever seen in basketball. Like she can do everything. I've just, I've, yeah, I've never seen someone with her frame. She's it, six foot four, yeah. six foot five with a seven one wingspan. Like watching her like fly around the court with her length is like unbelievable. Uh, it, it, it's just like we talk about like the way that some players like change the geometry of the court. Like she genuinely yeah. changes the geometry of the court in the women's game. It's unbelievable. And what makes it fun too is that she has uh, so a like she like I she, she I think I've. I voted her for defensive player of the year last year. I have an official vote, by, by the way, not meant as a flex, but just like, so what I'm saying, voted, I really mean it. Love it. Um, but like, yes, like she was that good for the storm last year. They ran part of what's fun with the W2 is like, there's so much scheme versatility defensively. Um, just because again, like archetype differences, the way the game is played is a little bit different. Um, and like, so she can do everything. She can blitz really well. She can switch really well. She's a fantastic weak side rim protector. She can play the fives of rim protector. She can play close to the level. You had John Paul Jones, who was 6'6", who has a good wingspan. I I did not vote her all defense last year. I think she's a really good defender at her best. Um, but, like, you add that layered rim protection like that, and that's really enticing. So, like, think of it like – I mean, like, like Giannis and Brooke Lopez. Exactly, um, except more mobile almost, which is kind of crazy. Um and so that's a ton. And then you have, I mean, Sabrina is an incredibly dynamic pick and roll guard, pull up shooter, really good playmaker and passer, knows how to move without the ball. Courtney Vandersloot is like, I don't know how you even make a comparison for her. Like, she is one of just the best East West dribblers I've ever seen. Like, she's really good getting into the paint, going just straight north south, but she's elite at keeping her dribble alive, creating anything and everything from anywhere. Um, I have no idea what to think on how they're going to play yet. What helps with the aces, so like the aces adding Candace Parker, like I can look at that and be like, okay, I think they're going to do a lot more stuff and enabling her as a playmaker because she's one of the best on the planet. And, you know, you're going to incorporate a lot more DHO, high post stuff, trying to be aggressive and in, in incorporating more movement in the half court to really open up her playmaking. Um, but with the Liberty, it's like, I mean, it's all – all bets are off for me because that's just an entirely different team now when you add that kind of talent. It's three top 10 players in one offseason. Um, so, yeah, it's very exciting. It's going to be actually, like, really interesting to watch to see actually, how, like, all of the mesh, all of mesh together as much as anything. I want to riff on this, too, because I uh, part of what is really cool about this is, like, A, a lot of players wanted to go to New York because of what they've done to rebuild. Um they were in a very dire place three or four years ago before they hired a new, uh, a completely new front office, had changed in ownership, of course, uh, with the Psy family coming in. And I talked to Jonathan Culp, who's their GM, uh, oh gosh, probably about a month ago, um, just because he's been there since they, they started this rebuild. He was the youngest GM hired at the time. Uh, I think he was like 32, 33 when he got hired. And so he's been here this whole process. And like part of what's cool and just seeing all these teams throughout, you're seeing more ownership buying. You're seeing what that does. Like people are excited to go to New York because 
they've completely revamped everything there. Like they went from playing in, I think they played not at Westchester, but like similar venue to where the Westchester Knicks play. And mm. like now, okay, they play at Barclays. They have their own facilities at Barclays. They don't share facilities with the Nets. Like they have their own stuff there. They've worked really hard to um, incorporate a lot more with, with what housing is because housing is part of, of the CBA. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. I think there's – being around the W and being as deep in it as I have has given me a a greater appreciation and understanding for how much more goes into, uh, into being a GM or being an executive with the team um, and building a team outside of just getting the players there and having the players mm-hmm. there. Like, you have to do all these things to make them want to come there. And I think uh, yeah. you know, seeing that really play out has been, has been interesting and cool. And mainly, I mean, I'm just – I'm ecstatic to watch this team play. It's gonna be fun. I even mentioned Marine Johannes. Like, I have to send you more clips, but like, the Marine Johannes is legitimately the most fun basketball player I've ever watched. The best in anything, the absolute best. Her, what her, of- her New York yeah. Liberty stuff is is wildly fun and entertaining. Watching her in the French league is insane. Um, like she'll take floaters from like 25 feet away and and Let's bank go. them. Like, I mean, she's like running one legged. Th- three pointers from you know going to her left like and she's actually it's funny i tracked it last year she's better as a movement shooter like pulling up and all this wonky stuff and actually on actual like catch and shoots um just some of the most unreal touch because she played she played water polo growing up so she has like that's just insane like she will like one hand whip pass cross court with just like a wrist flick like it's not like doesn't he have to like fully extend her arm like she just has some of the best palm control of the ball I've ever seen. And that's huge and having touch and doing a lot of things. And, and, and like it's, when it's her and Sabrina out there, cause Sabrina's like basketball IQ is just like insane. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like the most ridiculous thing. Like just watching those two, like figure it out. Like it's just like, Oh my God. Like these are two just like absolute geniuses playing basketball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a blast. And I mean, that's what makes it exciting too, because watch, I mean, like Brianna Stewart is a savant. John Quill Jones knows her game inside and out. Like talking to, I mean, I've mentioned it before in this pod multiple times, talking to John Quill about like how difficult it is sometimes to be a great shooter while also being maybe the best post presence in the league is like, that's one of my favorite conversations I've ever had, just talking the game with somebody. Um, Mm -hmm. It's going to be very fun watching what Sandy Brondello does with this group because there are so many things you can do with them which is what makes it fun. Like, I think they're going to have to get really creative with staggering. Obviously, like anytime we've seen any kind of super team in a game have to figure things out. A lot of it comes down to how do we figure out, you know, bench unit and getting the most out of, you know, making our, our stars still feel like they can do the things that they do. Um, So it's going to be very fun to watch. Okay. Uh, I don't think we have like any, any great questions here. Let's see if we got any, uh, Let's see. Pimpron18 asked, what's the number one thing the top rookies should be each working on over the remainder of the season? We'll take like the top couple maybe and answer some Mm -hmm. questions on that. Like Jabari Smith is just like handling ball and like having more control and like confidence over it. Right. Yeah. 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 That. And uh, I think I would also say um you know adding him um like just continuing to improve as an off-ball mover because part of what's been difficult for me or not even difficult but like for him with the as 
as they've leaned in more to Alper and Shangun, which I think they've needed to, and it's been good for them. Yeah, I do think it has been to not his detriment, but like Jabari, as good as he can be as an off-ball player in time, um, I think he still has to learn a ton about like reading the game and making decisions, uh, like snap decisions within an offense, which I think that's part of like why the lineups with like Shangun and KJ Martin and uh, Tari are like really fun and exciting because it doesn't make sense spacing wise, but they just make quick reads and they know where, where to go and they like crash the glass like crazy. So that's stuff I want to see too. Uh, Paulo is just like shooting. I think the, like he just needs to yeah. be a better shooter, like period um, for his role. He's, he's going to have to be like a really, really good mid range shooter. Not just like, you know, one, a guy who can make shots in the mid range needs to be like a consistent high level tough shot maker as well as be able to like knock down threes at a 35 to 36, 37% clip, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. Like him, him being able to become, I think a, the pull-up shot I want to see come around too. Cause he's been okay on catching shoots this year. Um, yeah. at least last time I checked, but yes, I, I want to see that come around more for sure. Um, what else? I, Let's talk about Jaden really quick because I actually think Jaden's been doing exciting stuff. He's been really great. It's funny. So I, I have rookie rankings coming out yeah. um, next tomorrow. So within however long of this being published. And I have Jaden like in the same spot that I did previously. And I, I like feel really bad about it because he has actually been getting better and has been great over the course. Not great, but like he's been really, really good over the course of like the last 15 games, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, it has been mainly for me. It's the the mid range stuff. Like he's starting to get comfortable in toying with pacing a little bit more. Like some of the stuff we saw towards the end of the year with Purdue last year. Um, yep. I wouldn't call him a good mid range player yet, but he's starting to work it in. And like having him, th- you know, you know, obviously having like arguably the best burst in the league, being able to figure out how to toy with that a little bit and not just be you know full go like james edwards the third actually wrote a really good column on this about him and and jalen shout out j3 love love that guy um but yeah he he wrote a really good piece about that that i i encourage people to go read but um yeah it's been that's been very fun to watch him and i think he's just seeing the court a little bit better as a playmaker because he's slowing down more um so yes that that is really encouraging stuff that you want to see especially with him being a little bit more shoehorned into controlling the ball um as much as he's had to uh ben matherin uh i have a lot of things i want to see him improve on so i don't want to be unfair but like i think a lot of it is going to be um i mean defense is the biggest thing for me with him i'm not really like i think the offense he's shown has been really fun obviously you want to see the passing continue to improve and grow i think that's going to take a lot of time but the defense is like it's so bad um and I don't really think there's been any stride there this year, yeah. uh, which has been rough to see, especially because the big billing with him is coming out was like, uh, <laughs> um, you know, three and D. And I just, especially watching my Arizona, I was like, I never really saw the D and it hasn't been there this year either. So, and he's in a weird mold too, where I don't know how, like, I think he can get better. I just am not sure how much better he's going to get as a defender based on how he, what his defensive awareness is right now. But Time will yeah. prove everything. His instincts at Arizona were also always just like really, really bad. Yeah. And a frustrating life. He's elite at 
making a switch happen that doesn't need to happen. Um, you <laughs> will die on every screen. Um, it is it's really bad. Um, Keegan Murray will be the last one we'll talk about. Yes. I think Keegan has been fun because he's rebounded from the rookie wall really well. Um, like he got nailed by the rookie wall partially because he dealt with some off-court stuff. If I remember correctly, he had like a big family incident that ended up, you know, I actually think if I remember correctly, it happened at the arena. Um, just scary stuff. Luckily, I, I believe his family members. Okay. But point being, um, he hit the rookie wall early and now I think he's really started to find himself again in that offense. Um, like you mentioned off rip, you know, talking about uh, them running like just those quick double drag dribble handoffs for, for him and Harrison Barnes. I think he's gotten to dip into his own shot creation a little bit more um, as the season's gone on. I think uh, it's going to be more of, okay, what, what happens when you meet contact? Like, is it just going to be a straight jumper? Like I want to see him. Okay. What if my footwork goes from straight line drive to getting bumped off to taking a jumper to, okay, I have the footwork to do a Euro step or I, you know, start working on a step through move, or I have something for if I get met eight feet out from the basket, how do I make this a more efficient look at the rim instead of yeah. just, you know, getting into my, in, in, into his face. I mean, it's a good, like he has a good jumper, obviously, but like, I think that's the next step for him in improving as a scorer, slowing down, you know, being able to make uh, the right read as a passer more within that too. Yeah, no, I think that, I think all of those are very, very good points. Uh, the last question I want to ask you just cause I, I had to pull this one from the mailbag. Uh, this is from V giddy with like an X in there somewhere. Uh, what do you think the best fit is for cam reddish at the deadline? Basically. Cause like cam reddish has got to, he's got to find a new spot. I think basically best fit for cam reddish, the deadline. Um, geez, let me even, well, let me look at all 30 teams. Uh, well, a, it has to be somebody that's going to give him a consistent role in playing time. It's not going to be a playoff team. Um, like if we're just being point blank, I don't see a playoff team that has a reason to give him consistent rope in playoff time. Um, I mean, I have I an idea. Yeah, where? My idea, my trade idea was so the Knicks like could use some bench scoring, like just like another option off yeah. the bench, basically. The Isaiah Hartenstein contract has not really worked out in the way that I think they were hoping. Yeah, not at all. I wonder if there's a move where they could deal Isaiah Hartenstein and Cam Reddish to Charlotte for Kelly Oubre. Yeah. I feel like I think Charlotte is possible for him. There Charlotte's so weird, man. I don't that I think they've done better things on court this year. I know it doesn't look like it's played out that way. I think their process is a lot better than it's been in past years. It's just been injuries and their rosters, frankly, not talented right now outside of you know, LaMelo and PJ Washington's made strides. But again, that's pretty minute stuff when you're looking at what you were hoping this year would be for them. Um, my, my theory on that deal for what it's worth, by the way, is like the Knicks get off of the Hartenstein deal for next year, which mm-hmm. is like valuable to them, right? Uh, they get Kelly Oubre for the rest of the year, who theoretically will be more valuable to them than either of those guys because he can enter their rotation. Uh, Isaiah Hartenstein allows them to move Mason Plumley for like some value 
basically, because they can actually just like kind of then have a real insurance policy as a center next year. Cause like, I, I would want an insurance policy for Mark Williams and Nick Richards, like not being able to hold the starting job essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Hartenstein would be a better fit with LaMelo ball and like more of a free flowing dribble handoffy kind of offense that LaMelo I think would be a little bit better in. Uh, like, I, I think that then you get the flyer on Cam Reddish at the end of the day. And if Cam Reddish shows you something in the next 30 games, maybe you give him a qualifying offer and you pay him $8 million next year and you say, okay, that's fine. Let's figure out what you are. Yeah, maybe San Antonio. Um, yeah. Just because, again, like with I – and this is not me reporting it. My assumption is Vassell is not going to play again this year. It hasn't been reported that he's not going to play again this year, but – Based on, I think it was like just last week or the week before that he just started, you know, going back in on the treadmill again and walking on the treadmill in San Antonio. I would, if he plays much, it's going to even, it's not going to be a lot. Um, So I think like maybe you, like Doug McDermott does nothing for them because Tibbs doesn't run any kind of sets that would incorporate Doug. Like maybe you bring back Josh Richardson, which I don't really love that for either party either, but um just in terms of like bringing in another guy on the wing who, which even then I don't know if they'd want to because Malachi Branham has just had a 22 point game last night. Our guy yeah. love Malachi Branham. Um, not really a wing, but like you get my point. Like there, I mean, Kelton Johnson's there already. They have a lot of guys who are on roster that are, they're kind of trying to see stuff in, but it would be interesting. Like I don't hate it. Um, Dirty Dancer in the comments just brought up Isaiah Hartenstein for basically Bones Highland. And then you could throw in, this is me saying that you could throw in the Ish Smith deal to make that work financially. Um, Hartenstein would be an awesome backup center for Jokic. Yeah. I just like what, what does Bones do for New York? That's also my question. You'd almost like want to move him to a third team at that point, because if you thought that Tom Thibodeau did not like Cam Reddish and the way that he plays, <laughs> well, oh, the problem boy. Is, my <laughs> is like, I thought he defensively, I thought he was pretty solid for New York, honestly. Yeah. And what they need is just the offense is so rough. Like he really needs to be in a place that is going to be creating easy stuff, giving him a defined role that is not handling the ball much. And he's got to hit his shots. Like, if he hits his threes, yeah. I think that's a serviceable player. Like, one one idea I've had is, like, what if – and I don't – part of the issue why I don't think it works, I don't know what you're sending back to New York that they care about. But, like, I think it would be interesting if the Cavs took a flyer on him and they believed in his shot. But Isaac Coro has been playing well, so I don't know why you necessarily even make that move. Like, obviously, it gives you more size. But, um, yeah, it's – Cam's in a weird place. Clitumnestra on a good day in the YouTube comments mentions that uh, Michael Malone did not like having Isaiah Hartenstein when Hartenstein played for Denver. He did. I I do think that that was a different version of Isaiah Hartenstein. Mm -hmm. Like Hartenstein now is like a pretty good rim protector. He's pretty conscientious on defense. It's, I think it's just a little bit of a different version of the same human being uh, than what he was when he was in Denver. Is yeah. what I would say. Um, I'm trying to. I've had people bring up Indiana to me. Rick Carlisle is not coaching Cam Reddish. Like, nope. especially considering how much control Rick has on roster moves, like, that's just not happening. Well, like, the, the island of misfit, you know, misfit toys, basically, you know, to quote a Christmas special, is like Detroit has like gone for these guys previously. 
and just like seeing if they can make something of them. And if they can't, they just move on. Right. I mean, Detroit could work in theory somewhat. I'm not saying that I would do it. I'm just saying that like, based on what Troy Weaver has gone for previously, I wonder if, you know, could like Hamadou Diallo for Cam Reddish or something weird like that be a thing? Because God, would I, I think that Tibbs would love playing or would love coaching Hamadou Diallo defensively. Yeah. I Hami's so fun to watch, man. <laughs> just super aggressive. And by the way, bring that guy back to New York. Yeah. I love it. Let's go. Bring him to the hometown. It'd be super fun. All right. Mark, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at MG underscore Schindler. Um, I should have – I mean, I've had a bunch of stuff coming out already. Uh, I just had something analyzing, you know, Candace Parker's fit to the Las Vegas Aces, what that looks like and means. Um, I should have more stuff coming out on the W in coming days. I should have some draft stuff coming out soon. Um, I have a lot of stuff coming out. <laughs> um, so, yes, a uh, lot, of, lot of stuff going on. All right. Go follow Mark's work. Go subscribe to Mark's Patreon. Uh, go subscribe to The Athletic, uh, theathletics.com slash game theory. That is a great way to support the show. Uh, go to – where else can you go? Uh, go to theathletic.com. I have a lot of words up. Uh, by tomorrow, I will have published like 13,000 words this week. Two mailbags, a NBA trade deadline big board. 2.0 with Danny LaRue and Seth Partnow. And then I will also have updated rookie rankings coming tomorrow. So please go to The Athletic, read all of those words. We'll be back on Sunday, probably with spins, unless something crazy happens and I feel like a trade needs to be talked about. Until next time, though, we will talk soon.